this uh, this little book is uh, is out in the resource center. It's entitled "The Fading of the Flesh and the Flourishing of Faith," uh, written by by George Swinnick. Most of it was originally a funeral sermon. Uh, he was likely orphaned. Don't know for sure, but he tells us that he was. He was raised for much of his uh, childhood in his uncle's home, his cousin's house. And obviously he would have grown quite close to his cousin, uh, Caleb. And it was upon Caleb's death that George Swinnick was asked to to preach. And so he preached this funeral sermon. Uh, Not in this little copy of the sermon, but in the original, there's a, a dedication that George addresses to his cousin's wife. And in that dedication, uh, he encourages her to, to take to heart what God may very well be teaching her through the death of her, of her husband. And in a portion of that encouragement, he, he penned the following. That you choose the good part that will never be taken away from you. God is teaching you that you choose the good part that will never be taken away from you. He adds, the heart, the heart will be fixed on something as its hope and happiness. That's true of all of us here, right now, this day. Our hearts are fixed on something as our hope and happiness, meaning we identify something as our purpose in life, as our joy, as our meaning, possessions, relations, dreams, gifts, comforts, whatever it may be. Swinnick adds, God blows out our candles so that we look to him and esteem him as our chief portion. And so he's reminding his, his cousin's wife, God, God has blown out one of your candles. God has removed one of your earthly joys and pleasures. Here is why God often does such things. It is to cause us to look to him and to esteem him as our chief portion. That is, as our greatest delight. I wonder if we can all say that right now. I wonder. God is my chief portion. That compared to my possessions, compared to my dreams, compared to my relationships, family and friends, compared to all the good gifts he has given me, they all pale when held up against this wondrous light, the beauty of God. I wonder. If we can say with the psalmist, Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and God is my portion forever. We have all fixed our hearts on something as our hope and happiness. What what, uh, drives you? What drives me? What uh, motivates you? What motivates me? 
Years ago, I, I hunted with a friend, and uh, he liked to use his hounds, and he had a couple of them, great dogs. And on a cold winter's morning, early before the sun was up, he would loose those hounds, and off they would go quietly. And they would move excitedly but quietly back and forth through the dense forest. And then as soon as they caught the deer's scent, the noise, the howling, and off they would run in a frenzy. They, 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 were, they, were, so, they were so determined in their task, so fixed upon the scent, that before he loosed them, he had to take their collars off. Why? Because as they ran through the dense forest, they were so driven that their collars could catch on branches and limbs and they would strangle themselves. They, they, were, they were in such a frenzy, their instinct would take over to such a height, such a degree, that the moment they caught the scent, off they went. And it, and it wasn't unusual for those dogs not to turn up for a day or two. I remember one occasion... We found one of them. She, she, she managed to travel three or four miles away, one scent after another, driven, driven, driven. Friend, what drives you? Something drives you. Something, this morning, you can identify it. There is something that excites you. There is something you live for. There is something you value. There is something you esteem. The question is this, is it God? Have I taken God as my portion. Until I have done that, I have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Until I have taken God as my utmost. Until God eclipses all else in my life, I have fallen well short of biblical faith in God. And at times, at times, God blows out our candles. He removes earthly gifts and blessings and comforts and delights so that we look to Him and esteem Him as our chief portion. Numerous examples of that from history. Uh, one I'm thinking of are the Ten Booms. Do you, do you know that story from World War II? Corey and Betsy, Ten Boom. Many of you have probably read the biography and some of Corey's writings. I think it was in the early 40s, 41, 42, the Ten Boom family decided that they were going to hide Jews and others from the Nazis. And for a couple of years, they, uh, they constructed these secret rooms in their home to hide these people from the Nazis' detection. But uh, eventually they were betrayed. I think it was the summer, 1944, betrayed. And the Nazis uh, invaded their home. Corey and Betsy were taken prisoner and actually ended up in a Nazi death camp where Betsy died. Uh, Corey was released, I think, four or five months later uh, because of a clerical error. When Corey reflected on those years, she wrote, she wrote the following. I used to look about as Betsy would read and I would watch the light leap from face to face. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. She adds, this was not a wish. This was a fact. We knew it. We experienced it minute by minute in that death camp. Life took, on, took place on two separate levels. One, the observable external life grew every day more horrible. The other, the life we lived with God grew daily better. Truth upon truth. Glory upon glory. How could she say such a thing? How could she write such a thing? She had taken God as her chief portion. And even when God saw fit to blow out the candles in her life, it caused her to esteem God even more. That's what George Swinnick was trying to teach to his cousin's wife in this little book. And toward the end of the book, he gives such a wonderful description of this marvelous God. Let me share it with you. God is all good things and every good thing. He is self-sufficient, alone sufficient, and all-sufficient. Nothing is lacking in God. If God were your portion, you would find in Him whatever your heart could desire and whatever could lead you to true happiness. Are you ambitious? God is a crown of glory. Are you covetous? God is unsearchable riches. Are you lustful? God is rivers of pleasure and fullness of joy. Are you hungry? God is a feast. Are you weary? God is rest. A shadow from the heat and a shelter from the storm. Are you weak? God is everlasting strength. Are you in doubt? God is everlasting counsel. Are you in darkness? God is the son of righteousness and eternal light. Are you sick? He is the God of your health. Are you sorrowful? He is the God of all comfort. Are you dying? He is the fountain of all life. Are you in distress? His name is a strong tower to which you may run to find safety. He is a universal remedy against all sorts of misery. Whatever your calamity, he can remove it. Whatever your necessity, he can relieve it. God is silver, gold, honor, delight, food, clothing, house, land, peace, wisdom, power, beauty, father, mother, wife, husband, mercy, love, grace, glory, and infinitely more. Than all these. Friend, is this God your chief portion? Understand this. At times, He will blow out the candles in our lives to cause us to look to Him and to esteem Him as our chief portion. The book of Ruth teaches us that. The book of Ruth teaches us that. Last Sunday, we made a start. In the book of Ruth. And I shared with you at that time that this book describes, let me repeat it, this book describes the relatively, no offense to Ruth 
or Naomi, but this book describes the relatively unimportant details in the lives of relatively unimportant people demonstrating a supremely important truth. God rules over all. We took three great truths from the first chapter, three things that happened to Naomi, or three things that Naomi does. Firstly, she suffers a terrible loss. We read of that loss in the fifth verse, chapter 1. Both Malon and Chilion died. Those are her sons. So that the woman, that's Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. God blew out her candles. The death of her husband The death of two sons. She suffers a terrible loss. And the doctrine we took from Naomi's experience was this. Job 14.1 Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. The second thing that Naomi does, she attributes her suffering to God. And we see that in verses 20 and 21. We see it in numerous places. It jumps out. At us from verses 20 and 21. Look at the last statement in verse 20. These are Naomi's words. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The last statement in verse 21. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. I went out full. Husband and sons. Dreams and expectations. The Lord has brought me back. Empty. The doctrine, Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The third thing Naomi does, she remains faithful. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. I said it last Sunday a couple of times. Let me repeat it again. Most important. While Naomi's experience was bitter, she was not bitter. She had suffered a terrible loss. She had attributed that suffering to God. And yet Naomi remains faithful. The doctrine, Job 1.21, the Lord gives And the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That brings us to chapter 2. Follow along now as I read this portion of God's word for us. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Remember that was Naomi's husband who has died. Whose name was Boaz. So here's the third major player in this narrative. We know who Naomi is. We know who Ruth is. We are now introduced to this man, Boaz. Verse 2. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Just pause for a moment. Why is she wanting to go to the field? According to the book of James, the essence of true religion is what? It is to care for widows and orphans in their distress. Why? 
Because God is the God of widows and orphans. Even in the Old Testament, even under the law, we see God's careful provision for the widow and for the orphan. And you go back and you read the book of Leviticus and you will discover that a farmer, when it came time to harvest his field, he was prohibited, absolutely prohibited from doing two things. First thing was this. He couldn't, cult- he couldn't harvest his crop all the way to the edge of the field. He had to leave a space. He could go up close to the edge of the field, but that edge, he dare not go near it. He had to leave it. And secondly, he could not harvest his field twice. Once he had gone over his field, whatever he had missed, whatever he had left behind, whatever he had forgotten, he was forbidden from going back to get it. Why? The Lord was providing for the widow and for the orphan. When it came time to picking the grape from the vine, when it came time to collecting the olive from the tree, they were not to strip these things bare. They were to leave portions, mindful of the sojourner, the foreigner in their midst, mindful of the orphan, the fatherless, mindful of the widow. So here's Ruth and Naomi. Here are Ruth and Naomi back in the land of Judah, back in Bethlehem with nothing. How are they going to survive? God has provided for them. And Ruth says to Naomi, should I go out to the field to glean, to gather? And Naomi sends her out with her blessing. Verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law, since the death of your husband, has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land, And came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. 
And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. I am, if I can use this expression, chomping at the bit to get the Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Because there we have a wonderful type and picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. We're going to have to delay that, though, for a couple of Sundays. Today, I want us to stay focused on on Ruth. And I want us to notice what Boaz says to Ruth and set it in the context of where we began. Uh, This book by George Swinnick and this reminder on the part of Swinnick to his his cousin's, cousin's wife, That at times God blows out our candles, but he does so for this wonderful purpose. To cause us to look to him and to esteem him as our chief portion. So Ruth goes out to the field. She just happens. I think there's a little bit of sarcasm there. There is a chain of providences running throughout this book. This is no accident. This is no chance. This is the providential sovereign hand of God. Ruth ends up in Boaz's field. Boaz comes out to see how the harvest is going. He sees this young woman he's never seen before. And so he begins to ask around, who is this? They tell her she's the Moabite who has returned with Naomi. And Boaz heaps such kindness upon Ruth. And Ruth is overwhelmed. And in verse 10, she asks Boaz, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Now notice Boaz's response. Verse 11, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the day of your husband, the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And notice this next clause, how you left your father and mother and your native land And came to a people that you did not know before. Into verse 12. The Lord repay you 
for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That's a beautiful phrase. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What does Boaz mean by it? I'm not certain. There are two possibilities. He may simply be using a a metaphor, right? Uh, That of a hen and her chicks, her young ones. And so Ruth has, uh, has turned to God, the God of Israel. And she is looking to the God of Israel for provision. Looking to the God of Israel for protection. She has sought refuge under the shadow of God's wings. That is a very real possibility. There is, however, another possibility. Boaz may have in mind the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of Testimony. And not merely the Ark of Testimony, but the mercy seat that rests upon the Ark of Testimony. And not merely the the mercy seat, but the two cherubim on the mercy seat with their outstretched wings. And there Moses tells us that whenever he entered into the tent of testimony, whenever he entered into the tabernacle, God would speak to him from between the wings of the cherubim. First time we read, I better be careful here, the first time we read of cherubim in Scripture is when? Back at the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve fall, expelled from the Garden of Eden. God places the flaming sword and the Cherubim at the east side of the garden to protect and guard the way back to the tree of life. The cherubim speaks of God's holiness. The cherubim speaks of God's judgment. The cherubim speaks of God's glory. We're told throughout scripture that God dwells above the wings of the cherubim. That is, the cherubim reside beneath the majestic glory of God. And the first time we find the cherubim in Scripture, it's a reminder of His holiness and this separation from God. And yet we come to the tabernacle, and what do we find embroidered on the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place? Cherubim. Again, a reminder of that division, that wall of separation. Here you shall come and no further. And yet, what do we find on the very mercy seat itself? The cherubim, their wings outstretched. On the day of atonement, the blood applied and the mercy of God secured. I don't know for certain, but I'm inclined to think that perhaps Boaz is saying a little more, employing a little more than a metaphor referring to a hen, but he is referring to the God of Israel, the one who dwells in majesty, the one who dwells in glory, that Ruth has consciously, Ruth has emphatically made a decision. She has made a choice. She has left her mother. She has left her father. She has surrendered family. She has surrendered homeland. She has given up everything. She has come to dwell among a people whom she does not know. Meaning what? She has given up all so that she might abide in the presence of the God of Israel. Now, I don't think that's a stretch. 
I think when we turn back to chapter 1, we see that very thing. You'll remember that uh, Naomi, after the death of Elimelech and her two sons, she begins the journey back to Bethlehem with her two daughters-in-law, but along the way she encourages them to turn back. I've got nothing for you. I'm, I'm too old to have sons, right? According to the law, according to the law, when, uh, when a man died, uh, his brother was responsible for taking that man's wife. The first child would bear his father's name and would inherit his father's land. And Naomi makes the point, I don't have any more sons. And I'm too old to have sons. And even if by some great divine design I should have a son, you're going to be too old by the time he's old enough to marry you. I have nothing for you. I, I've lost everything. I am poverty stricken. Go back, my daughters is what she says to Orpah and Ruth. And Orpah heeds the advice, doesn't she? She turns back. But Ruth, she clings to Naomi. And Naomi says to her, look at the 15th verse in chapter 1. She said, this is Naomi to Ruth, see, your sister-in-law, that's Orpah, has gone back, gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Is Naomi really encouraging Ruth to go back to her gods? Is Naomi really commending Orpah for having turned back to her gods? Or is Naomi testing Ruth? Is Naomi preaching a little sermon here to Ruth? And if I might add lib, Ruth, look at here, Ruth. I know you love me. And I know you've pledged to follow me. And I know you've come this far in my journey But Ruth, you must consider your motives. Ruth, are you following me? And are you heading to my home, Bethlehem, and to my people, simply out of your filial affection for me? Or is there a greater motive? And Ruth, have you counted the cost? In other words, Ruth, what is compelling you? What's going on here? What is driving you? If you're looking for a husband, And if you're looking for earthly delights, and if you're looking for comforts, if you're looking for what's familiar, go back. I'm not going to give you any of those things. I have nothing to give you. But Ruth, if your motives are right, if your motives are right, then follow. And what is Ruth's response? It's wonderful. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth gets something, doesn't she? This little Moabite woman, insignificant, poorly schooled, understands something. This woman has taken God as her portion. Look at what she's prepared to give up. First of all, she gives up her home. Where you go, right there in verse 16, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, 
I will lodge. The land of Moab is all I've ever known. The land of Judah might as well be halfway around the world. And all I've ever heard of the land of Judah has been negative. You should hear how my fellow countrymen talk about the land of Judah and God's people so-called. All I've ever heard has been negative. All I've ever heard has been slanted and it has been skewed. But I am prepared to surrender it all. Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Not unlike Christ's words to that scribe who comes to him. It's recorded there in Matthew chapter 8. That scribe who comes to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. To which the Lord Jesus responds, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere. To lay his head. You're going to follow me wherever I go. And please understand this, the Lord Jesus says to that scribe, I have nothing to offer you. In terms of earthly delights, in terms of earthly comforts, to follow me, are you prepared to abandon all? Do you understand that the riches, the treasures, you find in me will far eclipse any earthly delights. Christ is challenging that scribe. And Ruth, for her part, she understands that she has taken God as her portion. And therefore, she is prepared to give up her home. Notice, secondly, she's prepared to give up her people. Right at the end of verse 16. Your people shall be my people. Boaz has acknowledged that in chapter 2. He says, I've heard of what you've done. I've heard of what you've done for Naomi, your mother-in-law. I have heard of how you left your father. You left your mother. You left your people. And you have come to dwell in the midst of a people you do not know. You know nothing about. And anything you have ever heard has been negative. But you see, Ruth has taken God as her portion and she is prepared to surrender her people. Not unlike Christ's exhortation in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Do I, do I esteem Christ to such an extent? Is my esteem of those treasures and riches and beauties that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ so, so acute and so clear that my love for Him, that in comparison to my love for Him, my love for family can only be described as hatred. You see, Ruth, it's true of her. Ruth has taken God as her portion, and therefore she is prepared to abandon mother, father, family, dwell among people she does not know. Why? Because she is seeking refuge in the shadow of God's way. Notice thirdly, she gives up her life. Verse 17. 
where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. According to nature, who's going to die first? Naomi. Ruth will be left alone for how many years? Decades. She knows it. And yet even with that knowledge, that awareness, she pledges, my devotion is such, my commitment is such, my faith is such, that where you die, and even though I am left alone, that is where I am going to die. Because you see, my, my, the decision I am making, the choice I am making, this decision to, to head to Bethlehem, it does, it, it does not extend merely from my devotion to you, my love for you, but there is something greater here. I am seeking to take refuge in the shadow of God's wings. That brings us to the fourth point. She gives up her home. She gives up her people. She gives up her life. Why? The last statement right there at the end of verse 16. She takes God as her portion. Your God shall be my God. Orpah has gone back to her people. Orpah has gone back to her gods. No question as to Orpah's devotion to Naomi. No doubt concerning Orpah's love for Naomi. But that was it. When faced with a harsh reality of follow, what it would mean to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem, Orpah sees and finds nothing. And so she turns back. Ruth presses on. She surrenders her home. She surrenders her people. She surrenders her life. Why? Because she has taken God as her portion. Now, three lessons I want us to learn from Ruth as we conclude this morning. There are many, there are many, and I I encourage you to meditate upon this and, and glean the lessons from this text and from Ruth's life and example, but three I want to accentuate this morning. The first is this. We see the nature of real faith, don't we? We see the nature of real faith. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is to surrender all. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is to understand his unsurpassing value and be prepared to turn our back on all that we might possess the Christ. It is like that parable that he himself told in Matthew chapter 13 of that man who in a field finds a treasure, a treasure of great worth. And what does he do? He purchases the field. He gives up all that he might own that treasure. And that is what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That la- a lack of that kind of faith, a lack of that kind of all-out surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ can only be explained by one thing. What is it? A lack of knowledge concerning His true worth. That if we fully understood who he is, truly understood what he has done, we would be compelled by our appreciation and sense of his worth to surrender all and to take him as our chief portion. Years ago, a famous golfer, Payne Stewart, and I don't mind telling the story because Payne Stewart, from all accounts, was a believer. But Payne Stewart died horrifically in a plane accident. 
And not just any plane accident, a strange accident. He was in a Learjet, 40,000 feet, and the control tower lost contact. They scrambled a couple of jet fighters up 40,000 feet to intercept this Learjet to find out what was going on. No movement. Everyone unconscious. Apparently, they'd lost cabin pressure. And just slowly, without even realizing it, beyond perception they had, passed out. And eventually they lost fuel, and that Learjet plummeted to the earth. One of the Air Force pilots, reflecting on the whole experience, said, it is an unbelievably helpless feeling to pull alongside another aircraft and realize the people inside are unconscious. And there is nothing I can do physically from my aircraft, even though I'm only 50 feet away, to help them at all. Friend, are you going through life unconscious? I'm asking you this morning, spiritually unconscious, unaware of what is real, unaware of ultimate reality, ultimate truth, in a daze, completely sensual, rooted in this earth and what this world has to offer, no sense of urgency, no sense of eternity. No sense of the value of the living God. And that when presented with his inestimable words, the only reasonable response is complete surrender. And the only, ex- the only plausible explanation as to why an individual would, would be reluctant to surrender his, her life to the Lord Jesus Christ can only be this. They have no appreciation of his Value. That's the nature of faith, friends. The nature of faith is to take God as our portion. And it is to surrender all. Listen carefully. This morning, God offers you the precious blood of his son. The abiding presence of his spirit. Forgiveness of sin. Peace of conscience. Eternal hope. Abundant joy, complete satisfaction, and the enjoyment of him for all eternity. Is he your chief portion? Second lesson is this. In Ruth, we see the wonder of God's grace. Just quickly. Dark idolatry and gross immorality. No obstacle to God's sovereign grace. Never lose sight of who Ruth is. The author of this book never loses sight. Right up to the fourth chapter, he's still referring to Ruth as who? The Moabite. He doesn't want us to lose sight of that. This is one of the most important things he has to offer in this book. If if, if you understand it, understand it good, please, he's saying, this woman is a Moabite, immersed in dark idolatry, gross idolatry. And the descendant of gross immorality. And yet no obstacle to God's saving, sovereign, perfect grace. What an encouragement. The third lesson is this. We see the wonder of God's providence. Here's a question. Without this bitter providence, the loss of her father-in-law, the loss of her brother-in-law, and the loss of her brother would Ruth have ever made 
Naomi's God, her God. Apart from God blowing out those candles, would Ruth have ever looked to him and esteemed him and him alone as her chief portion? Let me conclude where we began with Swinnick. The heart will be fixed on something as its hope and happiness. God, therefore, blows out our candles so that we look to him and esteem him as our chief portion. Our God in heaven above, the one who resides in glory above the cherubim themselves, the one who is glorious in majesty, glorious in holiness, glorious in righteousness and goodness and loving kindness and faithfulness, how we praise you for your word, And how we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the gift of salvation that is found in him alone. Help us, we pray, as only the Holy Spirit can, to esteem him as we should, according to his value, according to his worth. May we see him as he is precious and beloved in your sight, esteeming him above all, forsaking all that we might possess him, surrendering all that we might know him. Grant us such faith, impart such understanding. And we pray it by the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.